We turn in our Bibles at this time to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8 is a pivotal chapter in God's Word where Jesus is, is pivoting. He's becoming more focused on his, his immediate followers. Uh, it's, a, it's about the midpoint of his ministry, his earthly ministry, where he now will have more of a private ministry with his disciples. And uh, it's very difficult for them at the outset as they, they do not understand what is going on. And uh, you will notice in Mark 8, verse 31, it's very similar to Mark 9, verse 31, and very similar to Mark 10, verse 33. And there's a triplet here, and Jesus is trying, is trying, I say, he, he's teaching his disciples uh, what it is to be a follower of a crucified Savior, which is a very difficult thing to comprehend for them. We'll get into that as well. I'm leading a sermon series on discipleship and what it means to be a disciple of Christ, and this is a, a pivotal uh, a pivotal chapter, section of God's Word to think about as we think about being a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I'll start with verse 22 of Mark chapter 8, and I'm reading from the ESV here. So Mark 8, verse 22. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and his, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning, um, but, but turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever will save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will be, or also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels." And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom after it has come with power. And so far the reading of God's holy and infallible word. Well, beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, God reveals himself to his people here. And as he reveals himself to his people... He really shows himself to be the prophet. Jesus shows himself to be, be the anointed prophet who teaches his people and instructs them in his way. And then we see how Jesus shows himself to be the king, uh, the, the great king who, who corrects his people and who draws them into a new path of obedience. He's, he's, our, he's our, our exalted king. And uh, we see that clearly in his rebuke of, of Peter. And then we'll see how Jesus is our great priest, our high priest, actually, the great high priest, who, who is the one who lays down his life for his, for his friends. He's the one who comes as a, as a sacrifice. He's not only the priest, he's also the sacrifice. And he offers his life as an atoning sacrifice. And as such, Jesus reveals himself to us this morning. 
as our prophet and our priest and our king. We could really um, open up the catechism in Lord's Day 12 and see how he is our chief prophet, priest, and king, anointed as such. And indeed, uh, we'll see a little bit more of that this afternoon as well. Jesus is the one who who is willing to lead his people and correct them and draw them and disciple them in his, in his ways, after his thoughts. And uh, as we think about God's word this morning, we are, we are going to be called to be disciples of Christ and to be those who are instructed in his ways and in his mind. And we should be those who are, are willing to correct others as well. If we, if we are a follower of Christ, then we ought to be those who are going out, not just sending money out, but actually training and discipling others in the pathway of obedience. And uh, we'll also hear the application to, to give up our, our lives as a living sacrifice to God. Uh, much in Romans 12, and you'll see this, this calling to lay your life down. And if you're not laying your life down, the question will be asked, are we really disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ? And so let's consider the revelation of Christ that we might also be drawn in and um, might behold his glory and might be those who are filled with love for our Savior. So Mark 8, as I said, it comes at a pivotal time where Mark is presenting here a pivotal moment in the Lord Jesus' ministry. Remember, this is the preaching of Peter that Mark records for us. So Peter is, 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 is going to clearly tell of his own faults here. He's going to clearly tell of something that was very pivotal in his life and ministry as he describes for us this great confrontation that Christ has with him that Christ might expose and open the door into his second <coughs> leg of ministry and show Peter what that will look like. And uh, consider how Jesus is, is teaching his disciples. He's as he teaches them, as, he, as, he, as the great prophet instructs them, he shows them himself. This is the work of the great prophet. He, he opens up the scriptures. He opens up the pantry and he begins baking. Right? He opens up the word of God and he begins exposing, feeding his people the bread of God's holy word. Even as he fed them earlier in the chapter with, with food. So we see how he... He is also now feeding them with, with spiritual food. This is the, the delight of the prophet, to feed others and instruct them in the way that they should go. So Peter has just declared that he is the anointed one. He is the one who is the Christ. Um, everyone's wondering who, who this man is that, that they're following. Some people think he's Elijah. Some people think he's John the Baptist. Who do you say that I am? Peter asks, or Jesus asks, and Peter responds, you are the Christ, the anointed one. Now this anointed one is very important language. If you look to Isaiah chapter 42, in Isaiah 42 verse 1, you see this language used as well. The Messiah is being spoken of. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street a bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench he will faithfully bring forth justice and it shows his character his his perfect character here and, and his, his mercy and then you see how because the spirit of god is upon him what will he do in the power of that as we'll again hear this afternoon verse six Isaiah 42, verse 6, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind. That's what we just saw in Mark chapter 8. Jesus is the one who's opening the eyes of a blind man. And not just physically, but giving him the mental ability to absorb the imagery. Jesus heals the man completely. In a way that no man could ever do, no doctor could ever do. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one who is fulfilling the Old Testament prophecy here. He's the one who's going to bring the prisoners from the dungeon. The prison uh, from those who sit in darkness, right? He is the Lord. This is his name, his glory. He will not give to another. So here we have Peter declaring, this is the one who is before them. The anointed one. Imagine 
the, the collective gasp of the disciples, as Jesus does not deny this, he does not deny that he is the anointed one, what Jesus does is he says, don't tell anyone. That's amazing. He strictly charged them to tell no one about him. If Jesus were a false, um, if he were false here, right, then you see here how Jesus is, is not, he's, he's declaring here that what, what Peter is saying is true, but he's saying hide it, shield it. It's not ready for others to know about me yet. Um, and so you see how Jesus is, is very much taking hold of that Messiah uh, name, title. And uh, as the King of Kings, he is the great expectation of his people. He's the long-anticipated uh, one to come who will save his people from, from all their enemies. And he's the one who will uh, destroy uh, the enemy. He will, he will wipe them out completely. And the, the Hebrews had a, a very big view of this king. Right? They, they thought of him as a great David, a greater king than David, one who would destroy the enemies of Philistines, get them out of here, right? remove them from our land. This one would be far greater than David of old. He would be the one who would restore his people's prosperity. The people of the, of the Jews at this time, they were being crushed by the Romans and their occupying forces, and they... And they, they were, it was a difficult time to be a Jew at this time. The taxes were heavy. The, the Romans were everywhere. The legions, right? And you had, this, 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 you had these, these little terrorists among the Jews who tried to get rid of, uh, rid of the, uh, the Roman occupiers, um, the zealots. But you see how Jesus uh, is, now, is now saying that this is who I am. I am the Messiah. Now what would this put in their minds? But... Yeah, this is great news. This is wonderful. We're going we're gonna to kick those Romans out of this country. We're going to make this country ours again. And you can see how this would attract uh, more followers, right? This would attract a lot of people into his church as Jesus started to declare this openly. But he, he said, don't. Don't tell this to other people. Don't, don't publicly declare this. Why would he do that? Well, you see, the Jews had this, this concept of prophecy that saw one mountain, right? They saw the, the initial foothills, and they thought that was the fulfillment. They didn't realize that there was multiple fulfillments, and that there was multiple stages, and that there was multiple levels of their redemption that was required. They needed redemption physically and, and politically, for sure. But they, much more than that, needed redemption spiritually from their own sin and their own rebellious hearts and from their ways of thinking that were like the world. Isn't that what Jesus says when he rebukes Peter, which will be our second point? Notice how he says in verse 33, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And this is our perpetual problem. That, that, that God's people set their minds on the things of this world and on the things of men. And we think it's by might and we think it's by power that we will rip, uh, rip these, these, these enemies of ours to pieces. No, that's not the way it is. It's, it's by great weakness. It's by great humility. It's by a little shepherd boy with a sling. Right? That uh, mighty giant is destroyed. The Lord God has ways that are heavenly. And he has ways that are far different than we have. And so the big confrontation will come to Peter in that his thinking is earthly. His thinking is, is very human. And he's not thinking in the ways of God. But I get ahead of myself. That's the second point where we're seeing the confrontation. And the first point we see here that Jesus is revealing himself. And you see what he is saying in verse 31. That the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. It, it is necessary, is the repeated rephrase in Luke's gospel. It is necessary, it is necessary. This has to happen. I have to die. This doesn't make any sense. If he is a greater David, why would he die? If he is the great king of kings, how could he possibly leave us 
and, and, and rest in a tomb. This doesn't make any sense at all to the Jewish mind at this time. Well, the Lord Jesus is showing here, he's teaching that he is not only the great conquering king, that he is, we will see that one day, but he is also Isaiah 53. Right? What does Isaiah 53 declare? That this servant of the Lord that we allude to in Isaiah 42 is the one who was despised. He has no form or, or comeliness or majesty that we should look at him. He has no beauty that we should desire him. He's despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. This is who Jesus was embracing. This is the, the person that he was declaring he was going to be. In Mark chapter 8, verse 31, for the first time, Jesus says, this is who I am. And you can imagine how, how this would have blown the mind of Peter. Right? How this would have just dismantled their whole thinking about their kingdom that, that was rising. No, their kingdom was going to fall apart. Their king was going to die. Their king was going to be despised. And re Jesus is taking a whole lot more of this messianic title than they wanted. They wanted the victory. He didn't want the, the humility, the, the, the affliction, the brutality... The, the dis, being despised and rejected of men, that was not on, on their, in their book what they wanted. And uh, by using the word must, right, I must do this, Jesus is, is, is saying, this is what I came for. This is exactly why I am here. And uh, this is this horrific event that is going to come to pass when I will be, I will be um, condemned by two very powerful courts of men, the Sanhedrin, the, the highest court of the nation of the Jews, this great court of justice, and by the court of the Romans, right? He, he, will, be, he will be the highest judicial court of men, and the highest judicial court of the church will condemn the king to death. This, this, this doesn't make any sense at all. What, what he's... What Jesus is exposing here is that the best justice the world can offer, the highest courts the world has, will be blasphemously wrong in how they view him. And they will actually make judgments against him that are so horrifically wrong. But this is the nature of his coming. And, and what he's doing here as the king is he's exposing that this world's justice has, has no justice. This world's kingdoms have no true righteousness to them at all. Even the church, the Sanhedrin, is full of malicious men who will destroy or try to destroy the king when he comes. And so Jesus, as a prophet here, is, is speaking truth. He's speaking words that are prophetic about his coming and about his passing. He's, he's telling them plainly, he says, right? This is what's going to happen. And this is very, very, very difficult. But this is what was anticipated all throughout by the Old Testament sacrifices. Hebrews chapter 9 Verse 22, right? It says that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Without the, the blood being offered as an atoning sacrifice, there will be no forgiveness. The only way people, men, will be forgiven their sin is by blood that covers them. And the only blood that will cover them properly is the blood of a perfect, spotless lamb of God. It has to be done Legally, it has to be done perfectly. It has to be done willingly as a sheep that goes to the slaughter willingly. This is how it must happen. And Jesus is declaring, I'm the one. I have come for this. I am the Lamb of God as John the Baptist had declared of me. And I will give my life up on behalf of my Father and his plan for your salvation. Now, you see the beauty the glory of Christ, the crucified one. It was not that he, he went there 
forcibly. It was that he went there willingly. And he kept on, as I said, Mark 8, Mark 9, Mark 10. He keeps on repeating, this is going to happen. This is what's going to take place. I will suffer. I will die. He spoke truth and he lived the truth completely, perfectly. And Jesus went to that cross and he went to that place of Golgotha, that place of curse. Well, secondly, we see how Jesus is not just a prophet who is uh, revealing himself and his purpose to us. We see how Jesus is now this, this great king who corrects his people and who instructs them uh, by his correcting word. So Peter is appalled. Peter is absolutely appalled at what Jesus has said about himself. And when he rebukes Jesus, the word that he describes or that is used here, and remember this is Peter's preaching. So Peter uses a verb here, which is very interesting. In rebuking Jesus, he uses the same verb that is used when Jesus rebukes demons. Wrap your mind around that. Peter, the disciple, is looking up to the master, the anointed one, the Messiah, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And he's saying with the same verbiage that the King of kings cast out demons and rebuked demons. He's saying about him, how dare you speak such words, right? He's condemning Christ in the most in the strongest way he possibly could. And this is why you will see Jesus bringing such a confrontation to him. At first reading, it might seem strong when Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Right? How can... Would you ever correct someone that way? If I, as a pastor here, said, get behind me, Satan, to you, would you take that from me? Right? That would be very difficult to receive. From anyone. But you see why Jesus uses that strong language is because Peter has used very harsh verbiage about him when he was um, rebuking him. And how dare he, the disciple, rebuke the anointed one, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Peter, do you not know your place? Peter, do you not understand who you are? You are the serf. You are the servant. You are the sinful one. I'm the mighty holy one of God. How dare you? How dare you speak this way about me? Just a word about correction. It's hard to be corrected, isn't it? It's hard to be corrected by by a total stranger. It's hard to be corrected by uh, someone that doesn't love you, right? It, It you just don't feel like taking it. When, when someone out there corrects you, I remember as a child, I, I was throwing a, a snowball at a friend of mine outside the church. And uh, I threw the snowball, and I had bad aim, I guess, and I hit the window of the church. And uh, we were worshiping in another building where other people were, were worshiping. And I threw this snowball at the window while they were worshiping. Very disruptive, right? Very foolish thing to do. And I remember this very strong, tall, terrifying man in my, in my old church when I was a little kid. I might have been five or six. I, I still remember him, though. He was scary. And he, uh, he, he corrected me, right? And he, he instructed me, you may never do that. You may never disrupt the worship of, of God. Right? I, I'll never forget that. And I was five years old. I was a little boy. But this, this mighty man... He corrected me, and I, I don't want to disrupt worship anymore. It's really helpful when we do this with each other, right? As a child, you don't know. You don't think. You, you just do without really thinking much. And you need to be corrected. You need to be instructed. That's a very foolish thing to do. Um, I've seen this a lot with the refugee families that have been coming to London. We have a number of them. We have two in our church. And... Very often there's no father figure, or there's a father figure who's in and out, and there's multiple father figures that really none of them can rightly claim the title of father in the sense of the Bible's teaching of what a father is. And what happens is that the, 
the children, they, they, they are not taught what it is to be a godly man or a godly woman. And they, and they, you know, all kinds of bad things happen. They don't learn to respect authority. They don't learn to honor the laws of the land. They, they think that the, the idea that you should put, you know, children in a car seat is just a suggestion. It's not a law. It doesn't really matter. And, and, the, and the lies, it doesn't matter. You can just lie, just lie all the time. That's how you get by. That's how you survive. You, you lie. And, and this is the, the, the culture, the background. And they, they don't have this, this instruction, this terrifying man that towers above them, that corrects them, right? The man that they look up to as a child is, is a deviant man. He's a man who has multiple girlfriends and multiple partners and does whatever he wants to do. And, and what ends up happening is the children, they, they, they defy authority because they're their father figure is just not respectable. He's not trustworthy. He's not faithful. He's not true. This is a big problem, right? So as they come into our church, we have to lovingly, faithfully disciple them and rework their thinking about authority. That authority can be trusted. That authority will not take advantage of you. That authority will not... I, I, I do not have multiple girlfriends. I, I have one wife, and I, I'm not looking for another. Right? I have, I have... I'm really happy as I am, and I, I'm content with what I have. And I'm not striving for the next dollar. And, and they, they need to see this in the covenant community. And we as a covenant community need to disciple them. And draw... It's, the thing with the, the refugee family, it's a little bit of a tangent, but it ties in is that they, they really think they need money most. They really need money. But, but the thing that I've noticed so much is that what they really need most is discipleship. They really need to be trained and instructed in the ways of the faith and in the ways of a godly family. And, and so the, the, it's been such a road for us in terms of discipleship, in terms of drawing them in, showing them what it is to be a Christian, living out, that, that faithful Christian life. And what I'm talking about here is the way that Jesus calls his people to live. You are called to be those who correct others. You are called as those who follow the King of Kings to be those who instruct the world how to live. They don't know. They don't know why you're here or why, why, why I'm here, why they're here. They don't have any idea about the philosophy of life, about the, the purpose of life, right? about the the, the, the importance of the human life within the womb. They have no concept of any of these things. They don't understand. They don't know. And you, as the faithful prophets, go out and you teach and you instruct and you correct. And this is hard. And this is where it has to be so much more than money. If I just send $100 to someone, I can't really reveal and, and, and teach and instruct them who Christ is. I've sent money, but I haven't taught them who Christ is. And I can't really correct them either when I send my $100, right? I can't correct people. All I can do is stop sending money. And that's a form of correction, perhaps, but it's not really correction in the, in the way that Jesus is doing here with his disciples. When Jesus disciples his people, what does he do with them? He lives with them, right? He lives with them for three years. Even Paul in Galatians speaks about how he was brought to Arabia for three years and discipled by Christ. And, and this is what Jesus does with his disciples. He, he lives with them and he teaches them his mind and he shows them his thoughts and he helps them to train their thoughts to think his thoughts after them. And this is what you must do. If you are a disciple of Christ, you must be thinking God's thoughts after him. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your way, says the Lord. Right? Isaiah 55, verse 8 through 11. And, and we need to realize that I need to train my mind. I need to set my mind on things above. Colossians 3, verse 1. Where Christ is and be changed in my mind. Be transformed in my mind. Romans 12, verse 1 and 2. And as I am transformed... It will be a necessity that I must then help other people to be transformed as well. 
And if this isn't happening in your life, if you're not being transformed by Christ's mind, and if you're not transforming other minds, which is the fruit of being transformed by Christ that we transform others, then you're not a disciple. And so I ask you, dear people, is this your pattern of your life? Are you thinking in terms of Christ's thinking? Are you thinking in terms of Christ's ways? Because what he says here about Peter is that Peter was thinking about man. You are, you are of an earthly mind, Peter. You're not thinking about the ways of God, right? That was the biggest problem that Peter had. It wasn't just that he was rebuking the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords in the most harsh way he possibly could. That was a problem. But the deeper problem, the heart problem, was that Peter was thinking in human terms. He was thinking by might and by power, we will raise this kingdom of God. But God has said, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Right, Zechariah? This is the way that God builds up his church. It is not by human means. It is by his spirit. And the way up to exaltation is the way down to the grave, right? The, the only way up is, is by laying yourself down, by, by dying. Dying to yourself. Dying to your own dreams. This has very practical implications in our lives. Right? There's a man in our church who, who bought a business, and the, the previous owner of the business was all about himself. And, and he, he, he milked that, that business for all the profits he could. And what he did with the profits was what? He bought a boat. And he, and he had spent all kinds of time by himself doing his own thing. He wasn't thinking about the, the company, the employees, the people he was living with, mentoring, discipling. No, he didn't care about that. He cared about himself and his own pleasure. And uh, that's common. That's more common than not. Right, to have a Christian businessman who's thinking about his employees as little disciples that he can raise up to become stronger mentally, spiritually, physically, that's a unique thing. This applies to the home, right? As a, as a, as a mother raising her children, you could, you could turn on YouTube and let the kids be learning from YouTube. Or you could, you could train them. You can instruct their minds. Right? I, I saw it this past week at, at the cottage. What happens at the, in vacation mode, most often for us, right, is that we end up all becoming very lazy. And all of us are just content to look at other people and say, yeah, that needs to get done. Can you do it? And uh, this is common, right? This is actually normal life for many, many poor mothers, right? It just, you, you, you just expect that you have to do the work because this is the way it is. And you need to be taught that you have to correct your children. You need to be taught that you need to train your children to... to children, this is for you. You have to get up in the morning. You, you have to say, Mother, how can I help you? How many, how many dishes can I wash today, right? How, how can I help my father cut the grass today? How, what can I do to, to please my father and mother? As a child, often, you know, you, you, you look at your brother. He, I take my kids shopping every now and then, and I'll buy one of them a nice shirt or something. What happens when he comes home? I don't have a nice shirt. I, I want that nice shirt that he has. Daddy, can I go shopping with you tomorrow? Right? And, and it's this whole idea of, I want to be like, I want what he has. It's all about you. And all you're thinking about is your desire, your mind, your will to flourish. Your will to prosper. You want to prosper. You want to have a boat. In the childlike term, you want to have an, another shirt. Right? And, and this is not anything new from the cradle to the grave. We're, we're, this is the way of man. I want to prosper. And I want to prosper on your back. This is what the lottery is. Right? Why do you buy... I'm, I shouldn't say I'm annoyed when I stand behind someone who's buying lottery tickets. But I so am. Every time you hear the duh, 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 noise, it, it's just, it irks me. Because what's happening is the person is 
trying to prosper off the backs of other people. They're trying to to get ahead by the masses of people being impoverished so they can become wealthy. This is the way of men. There's so many ways of men in our thinking in a church. Right? How can we make the church flourish? Well, let's let's get prettier lights. You know, let's get a prettier built. It's okay to have a new building or to do renos. I'm not condemning that. But it's, you know, how could we get more people in? Let's have a better looking pastor. Right? Let's have a, a better looking whatever. I don't know. But you, this is the way of the world. Right? They, they're thinking in terms of prospering by... And they're not thinking about Christ and his kingdom and the rising of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. They're thinking about their own view, their own concept of flourishing and prospering. This was Peter. We want to kick out the Romans. We want to prosper. We have a, we have a man. We have the anointed one. He's our man. Well, Jesus says no. And he says in the strongest way that actually matches Peter's strong, harsh language to him. Get behind me, Satan. Now, a word about correction. This is a practical point, too. You can take hard things, harsh things, from those who love you well. Right? Rules without relationship lead to rebellion. But if this man has loved you, and this man has lived with you for a year and a half, and he has poured out his life for you, you can take what he says. And, and Peter, obviously, takes what he says in the best possible way because he's preaching about it later, and Mark is writing about it later. And so, obviously, Peter takes it well. And this is a sign of a, a true relationship, right? When you have a strong relationship, you can correct each other. And you can say really hard things to one another. But you receive them because you know the heart of the other loves you. You know the heart of the other is for you. And this is Jesus' heart for his disciples. And and the key correction here is, you need to have a new mind. You need to have a heart that thinks about my heart and my mind and not your mind and your ways of thinking. So this is our second point, right? Jesus, as the king, authoritatively corrects his people. As the prophet, he reveals himself. As the king, he corrects his people, his disciples. Well, thirdly, we see how Jesus leads his people, his disciples. And this is where we'll see more of him as the priest. Jesus is a priest who who is really leading his people. In verse 34, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever will save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Right? Who cares about that boat? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my, of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Well, what you see here is the Lord Jesus Christ leading his people down the pathway of suffering and affliction. What is a great, the greatest trainer of your life? Who, who, who has helped you the most in your life? What has helped you the most in your life to become holy? Well, for, for me, it was my father passing away of, of lung cancer, right? Not a, not a thing I would ever choose to have a father die in his 50s from lung cancer, right? Not, not something I want. Not something I choose for myself. When, when you have this, this affliction in your life, the, the opportunity is there before you. This is a gift of God. Right? God gives to His beloved the best gifts. And the best gifts he gives, to be quite honest, are suffering, right? affliction, hardship, turmoil, pain, heartache, loss. This is what he gives. A cross. And, and the problem with our thinking about the cross is that we don't want it. 
I don't want the cross. I want the empty tomb. I want victory, vindication, glory. I don't want suffering, loss, pain, heartache. I don't want it. I really don't. What's the problem in my mind? I'm thinking in earthly human terms. According to the wisdom of the world, it's not good to suffer. It's a far better thing to have a boat and go on the lake, right? It's a far better thing to go on a cruise. You know, um, I, I thought about when I was entering into ministry, doing a cruise ship ministry. And, excuse me, a cruise ship ministry. I thought that's an interesting thing. Um, helping the crew of the cruise ship. And uh, as I was touring the, these cruise ships and helping uh, to get my thinking whether or not I should do this, I was struck. Right? I've never been on a cruise before, but I was on this cruise ship and I'm dining with the captain and, and just seeing all these people in this vacation mindset, right? all lingering around, all these beautiful women, all this beautiful food, all this prosperity. You know, what's the worst thing that could happen on a cruise ship? A pandemic, probably, right? But sickness, affliction. Basically, the cruise ship is designed so that you will flourish. And I'm not saying they're totally wrong. Only 98% wrong. But they're, they're, they're designed so that you would have the best possible experience, right? And, and, uh, and that you would just be full in every sense. And as I'm eating there, this all-you-can-eat buffet you know, with the captain of the ship, I'm thinking, this is the worst possible ministry for me as a young man, right? I, I can just see so much temptation all around here. This is going to be bad for my spiritual health to be, and even though the goal was good, I think, of the ministry to help the crew, um, it, was, it was a very tempting environment. And it, one that stuck with me, this is the thinking of the world. The thinking of the world is, you got to prosper physically. You better have lots of good steak, a lot of women don't just focus on one. Many is far better, right? Like, just take what you want. It's a, life is a buffet. Just enjoy, right? I, I literally heard this being preached in a, in a Presbyterian Church of Canada at my cousin's wedding. The pastor, right, a total pagan, he said, young people, live sexually. Live what you want. Life is a buffet. Enjoy. This is what he was preaching at my cousin's wedding. The church has it so wrong. The world has it so wrong. The way of the world is all about your mind, this world, your pleasure. Jesus comes in from heaven. He drops down, as it were, to earth. And what does he do? What does he train his people in? The way of heaven. The way of exaltation. The way of honor, where he will actually be honored by you and your life, is if you lose your life, if you give it up, you serve, you seek and save the lost, you are, you are giving yourself up for others. Your brother has a nice shirt and you want to give him your shirt. Right? You, you turn the other cheek when, when somebody hits you because this is what you do as a Christian. You, you, you give your cloak, you turn your cheek, you, you, give, you give everything up. You really give up your life. You give up your desires. You give up your dreams. You give up everything. You give up your father, your mother, your husband, your, your wife. You give up your children. And you give everything over to the Lord. And you say, Lord, I, 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 can't, I can't keep it. I can't hold it. I, I can't take care of these children. I can't take care of these people. I can't do anything. Can you please work in and through my life and, and, and even through my death and take care? This is the way of the cross. You give up everything. And it's, it's, it's actually so good. right? When you give up everything for the Lord, when you, when you, when you hold things like a miser, what, what happens to your heart? Your heart becomes so small. Your heart becomes so shrunken. It, it fits your own desires, which are so shallow and so, so dumb. 
So foolish, right? When you give your heart to the Lord, what does he do with it? He, he, he takes it and he reshapes it after his son. And it becomes so big, so full, so overflowing with love. The reason why you give up your, your life for the Lord, right? the reason why you do this is because this is what he did for you. The high priest, the great high priest, laid down his life for you. He gave it up completely. He gave up his last breath, right? And he gave it up so that you could live. And, and what man in history has suffered more than this man? What man in history has been more afflicted than Christ? Name one. No one has suffered more than him. No one has lost more than him. No one has, reciprocal side, gained more than him. Right? No one has been honored more than him. No one has been exalted more than him and more than he will be for eternity. The path of the cross leads to the greatest eternal glory that you can imagine. It's, it's not that bad. The thing is, you need to believe in eternity. You need to believe that this world is, is just a temporary passing thing. And you need to believe that that boat, that other shirt that your brother has, that you know, nice car that your neighbor has, that really doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter at all. Right? That beautiful vacation on a cruise in the Caribbean doesn't really make you ultimately very happy. Especially if there's a pandemic. Right? There's, just, there's so much that goes wrong in this world. There's so much that this world, even in, in the temporal eyes, if you look at it objectively, it doesn't make people happy. The wealthiest man or woman you know, are they really happy because of their money? No. Right? I used to live in Woodbridge, and that was where all the rich Italians lived. And the Italians, they, they worked hard, right? Immigrants that just came here, and they, they, they slaved. They built businesses, they built companies, they, they did so much. That first generation, right? And, and they, construction companies, right? They're all Italian. And, and anyways, the point is that they, all these rich people lived down my road, right? And Dutch people, they work hard, but not as hard as Italians. And uh, they're not as wealthy as Italians either. So these wealthy, wealthy people, I worked for some of them, right? I cut their grass and I, I did things, you know, worked at their car wash places and all that. They were miserable people. Not all of them, but a lot of them. And the point is, when you live for this world, when you live for the riches of this world, it doesn't satisfy. It doesn't give you eternal joy, eternal pleasures forevermore at God's right hand. What Jesus gives his people is what? Do you, did you notice what he gives his people? I have my eyes here in the wrong chapter, but it's the same thing. Mark 10, verse 30. Who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and lands, with persecutions, as I'm talking about, and in the age to come, eternal life. That's one thing he gives. But what I was thinking about was in Mark 8, verse 39, or 38, Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, I will be ashamed of them. Right? But the, the reciprocal is also true. Those who honor me, I will honor. Imagine the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the great, mighty, conquering King, receiving you in his kingdom and honoring you and exalting you for eternity because you laid down your life for him here. Right? This is our future. My king will honor me forever. This is way better than the wisdom of this world and the prosperity of this world. This world has nothing on what he has. He makes all things in this world by the word of his power, right? By his word, he makes all things. This God has offered eternal life, eternal pleasures forevermore with him. And what it involves is suffering. What it involves is sacrifice. But I have to say one more final word to you 
hard-working servants, because I know there's a, there's a number of them here in this church, right? People who just they give themselves, they work so hard for other people. The best thing you can do with that gift that you have, that Martha-like gift that works hard for other people, is to train others to, to live and to die with that same hope in Christ, right? You're, you're doing this not because you're a good person. You love Christ, and other people don't have that thinking yet. And you need to train them. Uh, you need to rest, and you need to train them to work hard for him too. Right? When, when one person does all the work, at the end of the day, we're, we're a very weak organization as a church. Right? When the pastor does everything, when the elder does everything, the strongest churches are those who are built off many, many people who are doing all the work. Right? And, and this is maybe something for, for you hardworking people to hear is that you need to train others as well. You need to continue working hard, but you also need to train others to have the mind of Christ that Jesus did when he was revealing, correcting them, right, in our second point. And even more importantly, the Mary, the heart of Mary, right, that, that just sat at his feet. The best thing we can do as disciples of Christ is to sit at the feet of Jesus, to sit in worship, to sit with the word of God open in our in our, in our homes, and to read and absorb the mind and the revelation of Christ, the mystery kept secret since the world began. We have it. We have the, the best story ever told. We have the mystery revealed. We have Christ. And the best thing you can do is absorb that and then teach it to others like a good prophet. So prophet, priest, and, and king is, is essentially where we were, where we've been. Uh, but the key thing I want you to come away from is seeing how Christ was a faithful discipler of his people. And the way that he lived his life was that he lost it. He lost his life. He gave it up that he might win his people to himself for eternity, eternal honor, eternal glory with him and his father and the holy angels. This is our future. And this is the, for, for all who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's come to him in prayer.